I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Welcome back to Thanks for Coming In. I'm your host, Jillian Clare. Today on the show, we have my friend Denzel Whitaker. He and I have known each other since we were wee children in this industry. We used to take acting classes together when we were just tiny babies. Not really babies, but like to me, 12 years old is being a baby. We have a very inspiring and insightful conversation. And I think Denzel is truly one of the smartest and most talented people in my generation. And it was a pleasure to get to be able to catch up with him and, and talk about his journey in this crazy industry. So here's my conversation with Denzel Whitaker. What's up, everybody? How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. I said everybody as if, you know, the audience is going to respond to me. But how, <laughs> how are you doing? It's <laughs> good to talk to you and anyone who's listening. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's nobody else here. Denzel, it's just us. Oh, that's all right. That's when you push the button and then you hear the fake claps, you know? Mm. Yeah. I'm going to have to add that in post. <laughs> uh, I'm good. I'm good. How's your afternoon? Doing good. Doing good. I, As I was telling you off the air here, I have been doing Ancestry and it's just a very interesting hole to go down and good Lord, I need to get out of the house. Yeah. You know, uh, as, as we were speaking, just for anybody who's now catching up, uh, that's a rabbit hole. So it if you was about to go down that rabbit hole, expect some surprises. <laughs> and maybe you might find out your grandmother was, you know, 
doing some things that she wasn't supposed to be doing. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, you could figure out that you have family who lived in very bizarre mountains in Mongolia. Like, it's just so crazy that that's even a thing. Um, If if I got family in Japan, that would be tight. (laughs) Ooh, that'd be cool. Yeah. How has uh, quarantine been treating you? Quarantine's been good. Look, I'm, I'm... My usual schedule is mostly working from home uh, outside of, you know, like auditions or, you know, anything where you want to hang with friends. So this right. is, this is actually becoming quite normal. I'm settling into a night. <laughs> You're thriving in this environment. I'm I'm jealous. I, I am. I am. I think, you know, the only thing, well, I guess I could say from my end, um, the only thing that I genuinely miss is maybe just the freedom Uh, Mm. So if you're driving around, you want to pop up on somebody or you want to get like a small intimate gathering together. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you know, you have to consider who you hang out with, you know, who you even interact with. I have friends who have friends who like won't hang out with those friends because they've seen them like partying on Instagram and they're like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to see you. I don't want to get COVID. Yeah, but I mean, you knew your friend was wilding before COVID. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I mean, like. Every, everybody's just got to move a little bit differently. And I think you, you know, you make your moves based on not just the immediacy of, of now, but where do you want to go? Mm. You know what I mean? I think, I think you got to move based on if you've got family members or yourself, if your health is, mm-hmm. you know, if you see yourself growing and thriving in an environment, you don't want to endanger that. I think, you know, something like this has only really magnified, uh, people's traits, behaviors, characteristics, and Mm. so like what you have intended for yourself. You know what I mean? Totally feel that. Totally. Yeah. So it's it's a moment to uh, just set intentions high and just, you know, move with purpose. I love that. I mean, you, you did something pretty remarkable during the pandemic, which is filming 5150. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the other thing that's like keeping me busy. Like literally before this call and right after this call, I will get right back into it. We uh, probably since March, when we started the Kickstarter, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think miraculous, miraculous and, and, you know, definitely divine would be two words to describe it as like we, we got a crazy amount of funding, we actually surpassed our goal. Um, we found ourselves shooting by the end of June. And I'd say since the end of June, I've probably been in post with my editor on zoom every single day. And then now we're you know, just wrangling up the remainder of our partners and we're doing it mm-hmm. all, you know, virtually, remotely. How was it filming like during the pandemic? Obviously, for people who, you know, haven't heard of 5150, it's probably it's a small cast, right? Like it, it wasn't a huge set. No, no, it was it was fairly bare bones. But what the challenge is, is so 5150 is about this uh, egotistical celebrity uh, at the height of his career. His political antics and his bad behavior gets him landed in a psychiatric ward for 72 hours. And uh, within that 72 hours, his publicist, his wife, uh, and his mother come in and basically warn him of the dangers he faces to himself uh, and to his career. So, you know, from that standpoint, it was meant to already be a very small, compacted story. Right. Now, the thing is, is that we also have to build the world of the celebrity beforehand because as mm. an audience member... You know, you step into this movie and now all of a sudden you don't know who the celebrity is. Well, let us tell you that. So I think our biggest challenge past getting crew together was 
getting the extra bits outside where it's, you know, we have to show them in the limelight, show what it's like, you know, in the public. And so that's where we as a team had to become resourceful. You know, thankfully our lead actor is, you know, actually somewhat of an, he's, I'm not going to say somewhat, he is a known actor. Yeah. He's a, he's a very well-known actor. (laughs) Very well-known actor. So, you know, there's already some material on him, you know, out in the open. Right. Right. Goes for like, okay, well we could fictionalize this, you know, make it look like paparazzi bits, whatever. Um, And I think that's been one of our biggest challenges because like for typical filming, you know, you might hire your background maybe like two or three days before. You might tell your friend to pull up. Mm-hmm. Can't do that anymore. You got to hire your background with your principles maybe two weeks out, get mm-hmm. them all tested. Then you've got to do a second round of testing. SAG is definitely a, way more strict. Yeah. Um, as well as getting city permits. And uh, I would say like if filming didn't already have enough stressors, well, <laughs> now it's the added benefactor of, you know, you got a distance and you got to get the test and mm-hmm. you have mask on. It just, unfortunately, it, it complicates the process a little bit more, you know? Yeah. And I feel like it, it has the potential of taking out that creative factor as well a little bit, only because it's like your brain is also so focused now on safety, mm-hmm. whereas we've never had to really do that before. In indie filmmaking, you're, you can usually just go on the fly and say, oh, you know what, do this instead this time. And it's like, oh, now I have to think about these very specific things, like getting people too close together or even, yeah. you know, touching somebody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of those things, too, where like, if you really want to do this black and white, like if you want to do it by the book, well, then there's just a little bit more red tape that you're going to have, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more hoops you're going to have to necessarily go through. Now, plenty of friends I have, they've shot some stuff on the fly, but mm. you're taking a risk, you know? Yeah, I mean? you're taking a risk yeah, and yeah. you're you're risking the people that you're you're going to be around as well. Exactly. And it's not just the people on set. It's literally you stepping off that set and then mm-hmm. everybody else you interact with who is in your personal bubble, you know? Right. People who are in your personal bubble. And I feel like people are also forgetting it's like, even if you just go to the store, then like you're also putting those people at danger. It's just such a, a wide spectrum of people that you're putting at danger if you're not being careful yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you feel going to the store still? Now I feel a lot better. I mean, I've personally been tested a crap ton of times because I, I was filming something and I was living in a bubble. So I feel OK. Um, But yeah, it, it, it definitely those first couple of months, I was terrified to go anywhere. But now I feel, you know, I mean, I'm always wearing my mask. I have hand sanitizer up the wing wang. Like (laughs) I, I was doing the thing where you get home and you go in the garage and you take off all your clothes and then you put your robe on, you immediately throw those clothes into the washer. I went like full throttle there for a couple months. Yeah, for real. Cause we didn't know what we were. I mean, it's just like, it was scary. You don't know what the imminent threat is. You just know there's Mm -hmm. a threat around you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the and the weird thing is, too, is that you don't know we don't know the long term effects on it either. So we don't know what somebody who had COVID, who thankfully survived, is going to feel like three years from now, if they're still going to have some sort of a symptom or some long lasting effect from it. It's just so bizarre. It's wild times, man. It's wild. It's like wild I, times. I was talking to my, my mom's today, you know, not to go down the COVID rabbit hole, but it's just like, <laughs> what is our industry going to look like? You know what I mean? Oh, I know. I mean, it, it, it's crazy because I think 
some of these bigger studios, you know, a lot of them are owned by tech companies or either they've been around for multiple years or there's mm-hmm. money that's backing them, which we're not going to get into the legalities of that. But, you know, <laughs> there uh, they'll they'll be OK. But, you know, right. some startups or people who are just now getting their breaks or you on the cusp of something or, you know, you had one big movie, but you're still kind of on an indie level. Mm-hmm. It's treacherous territory because, you know, unless you're being innovative during this time. Yeah what is your pivot moves going to look like? You know what I mean? Because you definitely got to pivot. Everybody got to pivot. Oh, yeah, you have to. Yeah. It's it's very – I don't know what it's going to look like, and it hurts me because I, I think ind- independent filmmaking is so important, and it's definitely something that I've been living and you've been living now for a while with indie filmmaking, and I feel like this side of our industry has kind of seen just a total shutdown because it's just such, a, such an expense to try to even be able to shoot anything on a shoestring budget yeah yeah no i mean that's that's the thing i think i hate to say it but actually i feel like independent filmmaking might still thrive Mm. because i think there's some hoops that you don't have to go through where like studios you know the rock kevin hart etc like i've heard of studio things that are supposed to be happening but which one of those guys is about to really risk their life and risk the crews because they're working at bigger sizes. So I'll say this much for independent filmmakers. I think the smaller operations are going to be able to move a little bit Mm -hmm. quicker, Mm -hmm. but still I think the medium as a whole is going to suffer. You know what I mean? It's just hundred percent. Yeah. You just gotta, you just gotta get creative. And then once you got it in the can, then I think distribution, especially with streaming platforms and mm-hmm. now all that's opening up. So I think the distribution is actually getting a little bit better. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's funny when we got into this quarantine, the first thing I said was, I am so upset I don't have a film in post-production right now because this yeah, would have yeah. been the perfect time to be in post for something. Oh, are you kidding me? Drop something when nothing's happening? It would have been great. Everybody's on their phone, you know? Oh, man. Would have been awesome. everybody's on their phone so as soon as you share some news like it has a chance to actually do nothing like people are breaking numbers whether it be like records or or film Mm -hmm. or whatever it may be but that's just because everybody's home everyone's home yeah (laughs) i know i know well the the second film that i directed came out like march i think it was like march 18th or something like that i don't know somewhere in the middle of march so we hit just right when all the kids got like home mm. sent home from school and we're like fantastic yeah, <laughs> this yeah, is yeah. great for us because now kids are home in the yeah. middle of march and they can watch the movie that's amazing i that's know it was amazing. great um okay so enough of covid <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> take me back because we met let's see we were probably what 12 or 13 when we initially met yo yeah it was something well, like that yeah <laughs> Because I remember, I remember like texting you on my sidekick after I think we were in Lisa Kaufman's class together, and I mm-hmm. I totally remember texting you on my sidekick because I thought my sidekick was the coolest thing in the world. Um, the coolest thing. <laughs> so, what got you into acting when you were a kid? Because that's not something I've ever really known about you. Seriously? Uh uh-uh. uh. I don't know how you got into it. I just know you from like the moment that we met. You know. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh. Yeah. I mean. The tripped and fell into acting, really. Like mm. the 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 short side of the story is is um at a relative who recommended me at one of those kiosk booths in the mall. 
<laughs> and signed me up. And, you know, my parents get a call. Now they use the fake name. So we never really found out who the relative was until many years later. Oh. Uh, went and tried it out. And for me, Jill, it was like one of those moments where it was so freeing. Mm. And, you know, my father, he's a, he's a mechanical engineer. He's an architect for HVAC company. Uh, wow. So he always, you know, thought I would maybe follow in his footsteps of engineering. Like he mm-hmm. would get my brother and I pencil sets. So I was very much an artist at a young age. So I thought I was going to be, you know, a cartoon artist or something. Oh, wow. And in paper. I never thought it was going to be acting. But, and it wasn't sports for me. I, I couldn't stand sports. Like sports didn't interest me. I feel uh, you on that. There's no way. Yeah, it just it just wasn't my bag. You know what I mean? Right. So it was one of those things where I remember being uh, in, in that class, um, in that exhibition group, and it was so freeing. Hmm. I remember, you know, Jim Carrey sort of talking about how he felt like he was putting on characters. Like, I really did feel like I was putting on a character and, and not myself. It's sort of like you just black out. From that moment, I loved it. The The management ended up being one of those scam talent management. So, Oh, yeah. Those are fun. I mean, they're around. They, you know, <laughs> they, they collect money. They got a great business model. Like, as an adult, <laughs> Yeah, they do. I get it. But, you know, as a kid, my parents suffered. But they, uh, thankfully enough, you know, my parents were super supportive. And they were mm-hmm. like, they could see that this was something that I wanted to do. And believe it or not, my first role was training day, which was uh, a background talent role that got bumped to a principal. And that I love when that happens. That happened to me yeah. as a kid, too. Did it? For what? Yeah. For, for uh, what? Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. I got hired as like a background actor when I was like eight. And then Sam Raimi started feeding me lines. And all of a sudden, I got bumped up to a principal. Yo, same thing. Wait, hold on. You were in the trolley where yeah. like and yeah yeah it's just the girl crying <laughs> no i remember that because i love that movie like it's one of the best superhero films of all time i used to watch that shit back and forth it's well, so good i love yeah. it too yo that is so crazy i have not thought about that scene for maybe a couple years until you just reminded me and I, every time i would see it i was like yo there's julia <laughs> freak out that's so dope i love that so that the same thing happened to you on training day how bizarre yeah, same exact, literally the same exact thing. Wow. Yeah. So that was the that was the first big set that you were on then. That was the first big set. That was the first big anything. Okay, so. Isn't that wild though? Like that first time, I remember doing Spider-Man and it just feeling like such a, a huge thing. Like it's just mind blowing when you're a child. Well, first of all, you're working on a whole different. A lot of people ask me like, what was that experience like being on a set? Now, you said you were eight when you did Spider-Man, right? Yeah. Okay, so I was 10 when I did training day. Now, let's honestly answer this, because when people ask me this question, I'm like, well, I was 10. There was so much going on. I didn't anything about acting. Yeah. The only thing I remember from it is that, like, Kirsten Dunst was the coolest person in the world, and she took me to, me and a couple of the other girls took me to her trailer, and we, she painted our nails. Like, that's what I remember of the experience. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. I, I remember Oreos and I remember <laughs> I remember it being a long day and I remember yeah. we were in the middle of Watts, which as a young black male, you don't want to be stuck in Watts if you don't mm. there. And, uh, <laughs> Macy Gray was definitely a, a uh, colorful character and Denzel 
He showed up. He had the briefcase with the metal guns in it. And oh my gosh! Like two desert eagles, and he was like clicking the guns, and he was like, "So your name's Denzel too, huh?" And he just <laughs> walks away. But it was the same sort of thing. Like Denzel kept, you know, asking me questions, and I didn't know the rules of what I was supposed to do, so I kept responding right. to him. You know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think when you're a kid and you're around like big stars like that and you just you're not really aware of it. And mm. I think that's probably why stars talk to the children on set so much, because they, you have that innocence of like not being starstruck or like knowing who they are. You're just a kid who's like, hey, I'm here and you're here and what's up? Exactly. Exactly. It goes so far over your head. Like you mm-hmm. register. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So training day. And then what? Then so you're 10 when you do training day. And then how long until you did the Great Debaters? So Great Debaters was when I was 17. Um, and in between that time, a uh, series regular on all that, um, which definitely I mean, so fun. You know, you were you were right there in the mix. I mean, I always think about that time where we were young kids in the mix of like young Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like going back and looking at all those weird photos of like all of us together at all these events when we were like 15, 16, it's just so bizarre. I just think about it. Like our parents were taking us to these events because we were <laughs> supposed to be networking and it yeah. was like us hanging out. And then I know like some of our friends were home. Were you homeschooled by the way? I was. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I graduated out when I was 16. I took the chess B. Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I did the same thing, but stayed in it. But like, we were homeschooled. Well, here's, here's what I'll say. I, I went to a public school, but I was never there. <laughs> uh, but we, 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 that was the only way like we could hang out or like, you know, we could interact. And it's true. It was like, it was like our high school, all those weird events that we were always at was like our high school. That was our click. That was our connection. So yeah, definitely all that. That was one of the the moments where like the whole Disney Nickelodeon camp where we all had aspiration as teenagers to be on that, you know, those network. Yeah. And isn't it funny that like when you're a teenager in this industry, everyone just at least at that time, everyone just pushed you to Nick and Disney. Like everything was you need to be on these networks. End of story. Oh, that was it. That It seemed like that was the only thing you could be on. You, would, mm-hmm. you know, a movie would come around every once in a while. But Nick and Disney. Woo! if you, yeah, get, you get on that end game. Yeah, you're booming. Next thing you know, you're out in limos. At least that's what you used to think as a kid. Right? <laughs> yeah. Really, uh, it's just sneaking into the Kids' Choice Awards. That's it. Pretty, oh, my God. The KCAs. Uh-huh. Man, there was, I don't know if you were, were you there that year where I jumped on stage and I did Rapper's Delight? I think so. <laughs> I think that's actually the year that I snuck in with my ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. Hold on. Who who were you de- was it was it someone with a V or who? Yeah, Vinny at the time. It was that Vinny was Pergola. Yeah. Vinny. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, to, to answer your question before we go down memory lane as people. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was I did like some television stuff, had some commercials like Aflac commercials, Adidas commercials, different things like that. Um, went to do uh, all that was on Sweet Life is Zach and Cody. Great Debaters popped up around 17. Mm-hmm. That was really my transition from, I guess you could say, like, you know, television episodics into film. Like, that was my first right. major film, you know, for me. Um, that sort of helped me to cross over. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. 
And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And that's that's so special. It's rare to find a film that does that, especially for young actors. Yeah, that one. Great Debaters is always going to be a special one in my heart because I, you know, as a black actor, there, there's very few times where roles like that come around. Great Debaters was kind of like a pioneer at its time before we went down the, the, you know, avenue of slave pictures and the depiction of right. oppression and black history. Like, you know, Great Debaters was something that was kind of on its own. It was meant to be, you know, a, a historic lesson. Mm-hmm. And that film for me, I think it grows in its importance for other people because they show it in schools, they show it at colleges, but even for wow. me, like as an adult, like it continues to grow in its importance, you know, every single year. So yeah. set to the backdrop of like the Black Lives Matter movement that just happened, like there's so much that I think was built into me and within my character that I didn't really quite open up. Mm. And, you know, as me and say for so my fellow peers and especially, you know, other black people that I know we were talking about it there were certain experiences that I had on that film that I took away from and definitely molded me from that moment to now you know what I mean I I totally get that I actually I had this moment recently where I remember I was looking at old pictures and I found um, these pictures from a show I did called meet me at the oak when I was like Mm -hmm. I don't know nine years old and it was a story it was a story about a young white girl who falls out of her tree and her neighbor who's a young black girl was with her and she dies my character dies and because of it the families like hate each other now and they start blaming the little black girl for the little white girl's death and I I had this moment of like realization that because of I had been in that play it really affected the way I think about things and the way I, I grew up 
And I reached, I actually found the writer. His name's Leon Gray, and he's still writing amazing plays out in New York. And I found him and I messaged him and I was like, dude, I just realized that your play actually shaped the way I thought about things when I was a kid. And it translated into my adult life. And I never really put it together. But I think because of being in a show like that, where it's like, here's the blatant, like racism of the 1950s put out in front of me every night, I was somehow able to get that into my brain as a very young child, which I feel like needs to happen anyway. But that's a whole different story. No, no, it definitely. uh, That's incredible. And, and, And similarly, like, if I were to share sort of a story in tandem with that, mm-hmm. so there was this moment in the great debaters where we, uh, we come across a lynching in, in the back mm. roads of Louisiana. Well, it's supposed to be Texas, but we shot in the back roads of Louisiana, pretty much right on the border of Louisiana and Texas. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day, uh, just like it was yesterday, you know, just kind of the feeling actually being, on those roads and thinking to myself, like, there's no street lights. Like, what if you're just out mm. here at night? You know, even as a 17 year old, you're thinking like, how do people live in these conditions? And there were mansions, you know, where families were out there, but of course those families happen to be white. So mm-hmm. during the day and nothing's really, you know, too alarming or too triggering. But as the sun started to set, we knew there was this lynching scene that we had to film. So as mm. soon as, you know, the, Props department starts bringing out the rubber body and, of course, stringing it up on the tree, you know, because they got to test it, of course. Right. Um, but you could just feel the air, the the atmosphere of the set just change. Yeah. Even though, you know, we didn't really have like a racially divided set, you know, even at lunch, it was almost like the people of color and black people were sitting in one section and then, you know, like white people were sitting in the other section and it almost became like a a self-segregated lunch and and I remember like the transpo guys had you know caught some flag because they were making jokes over the airwaves they instantly got fired Oof. Uh, yeah the uh the neighbors who were out there like I said who owned these like mansions and ranches and whatnot mm-hmm. you know they came out with like lawn cha- chairs and beer canisters and they're watching it like it's a spectacle which is oh god and you know we as actors we're in the back of the car and as we're even doing the scene, we pull up, you know, as 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 directed within the script, we pull up to basically a mob of white people lynching you know, what would be this black man. And I remember like all of those background actors just basically turning around and something about it didn't feel like acting. You know, oh, God. I don't know the intentions of what are in people's hearts, but I can only say that set within those parameters and being within a scene like that and experiencing it within that context was probably one of those moments that really, really made me feel connected to my ancestors of what mm-hmm. they had to go through on a daily, daily basis on some regular back roads where like that was normal life for them, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, and it's That must of- have just been so heavy to deal with, especially at 17. I mean. Well, the crazy thing about it is I think it's kind of like the experience that you just put forth is like. At the age of 17, I knew I was acting. Right. But I knew it was real. And it most certainly influenced, because we tried to shoot as much as we can in chronological order, it definitely influenced, you know, the ending speech that I delivered within the film. Hmm. But even to this day, like I said, as as we're experiencing the traumatic events and as we're experiencing mm-hmm. this this racial injustice, it's like 
that then pops back up in my mind. And as like a 30 year old adult now, I, the context of that scene weighs a little bit heavier, even, you know what I mean? I, I can't even fathom filming that, but I, I do understand what you're saying. It's like when you're young and you're experiencing those types of atmospheres and, and scenes specifically because you're acting, it's not really something that you comprehend to its full extent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's it's one of those things where s- similar to you, that film definitely changed and molded my perception Yeah, of, in a way that was necessary and I think everybody's experiences are, are tailored to everyone's life because no one mm-hmm. has the same life. So very much so where if I have a cousin who lives in the South who's experienced it firsthand versus me who as an actor from Los Angeles might right. not experience that, that was my connection. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that too, like as actors, especially as child actors, we were able to experience things that necessarily we wouldn't have been around and because of how we got to experience them, it's now affected our adult lives. Absolutely. I mean, it's still in general, just whether we're children or adult, like name me another profession where in one instance you're, you know, hired to learn the piano and the next mm-hmm. you're learning to dive. And I learned how to drive a, a stick shift. <laughs> oh my gosh. Really? <laughs> What'd you learn to drive the stick shift for? Because God, you need to teach me. I'm bad. <laughs> It was this movie I shot in uh, in South Africa. Funny enough, it's supposed to be a movie in San Francisco, but we shot in South Africa. What? And, uh, so on top of learning how to drive a stick shift, I'm learning how to drive on the opposite side of the road. Oh, my God. No. Yeah. I would have crashed in five seconds. It would have been done. Oh, my God. Well, I, I've always wanted to learn, my and my dad wouldn't teach me because, like, from the age I was ready to drive a stick shift, he always had really nice sports cars, and he was like, mm. "You're not about to mess up my clutch." <laughs> Smart <laughs> uh, man. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so I learned on set, and it was one of those things where, okay, cool, I did this. And then me and my buddy, we actually traveled around Europe directly after the film, and what? so I a, a manual car. And I, my dream was to always drive on the autobahn. And I taught myself for maybe about a week and a half driving on the autobahn how to learn stick shift. Thankfully, to that movie. Oh my gosh, what is that's so cool. But that's that's what I'm saying. Like the world of acting, like there are some cool things that we get to do where you get like weird life experiences. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah, there's it's acting is definitely one of those things where it's like I, I know certain things that I definitely shouldn't know. Like there's no reason for me to know them, but I know them because I played a character who, who had to know them. Exactly. If you didn't know them, you wouldn't be as truthful to the character. So you have Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like did I have to learn Morse code for something? Yes. Do it, could I do it again now? Probably not. But I mean, that's gangster. I want to know Morse code. <laughs> if I ever relearn how to do it, I'll teach you. <laughs> yeah, please do. And then we'll, we'll rent the stick shift car and I'll teach you. Uh, how to okay, perfect. <laughs> um, so recently you've been you you have a movie that just came out, right? Follow me. Is that just uh, it's, out? it's coming out September. What is that? 18th? Uh, yeah, it's now called No Escape, I think, for the U.S. They're no titling it. No Escape coming out September 18th. Cutthroat City coming out August 21st. Look at you. Uh, just on the back burner. Both Killing of, the game. Movies, both of those movies were shot two years ago. But I they, love that. And then now they're like, oh, God, we need content. Push. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, you know, the indie market, it's like even though they have, you know, some notable names and whatnot, the indie market it takes time and 
Yeah. That's one of those things where like a lot of friends are hitting me up right now. Like, oh man, yo, you got two movies coming out in a pandemic. You've been working. <laughs> You're like, actually, I've been chilling, but. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's exposure. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Better, you know, good exposure. We love that. Yeah, I have yeah. to ask you what uh, what it was like filming Black Panther because that must have been like the coolest set ever. Unreal. It's that's for the same way we compare like being 10 and 8 on a large set. Yeah. I mean, like I would even ask you how was filming Spider-Man if you were, you know, a little bit older and able to contextualize like mm-hmm. Black Panther. It, it's one of the biggest sets I've ever been on. Um the secrecy and the privacy of the content, especially because all that stuff leaks on the internet now, mm-hmm. uh, which is so funny. I actually have a, I have a, I have a side story since we're Spider-Man Ken uh, at this point. <laughs> so, there was a time I was shooting on the Sony backlot and okay. was shooting Spider-Man 3. And so by that time, like the internet was already buzzing, like Spider-Man 2 was a success, Spider-Man 1 was a success. So I got to see Spider-Man in the black suit and mm. I got to see you know, the Sandman at the time, what he was doing. And I remember like on whatever iPhone I had at the time, I (laughs) pictures posted it online. And like, I was like, yo guys, you'll never believe it. I was on set. And the internet was like, ah, we don't believe you. Who are you? Like, there's no way you got these from set. Oh my God. I'm thinking to myself, like the line of believability on the internet is so thin. It's yeah, it's so thin. But at the same time too, like, the reason why I bring that up for Black Panther is nowadays everybody can't wait to get their hands on that type of information. You know, they want to find totally. out. Everything. So the roadblocks in place, like you get your script electronically, you mm-hmm. have to sign for your sides daily. You maybe only get your piece of the script and nothing else. You know, there's pictures posted everywhere between like, you know, uh, the, the offices that they were running out of and the studios that we were filming at. Don't take photos, mm. contract, like you can't do anything. And yeah, because I remember when it came out and being like, holy shit, Denzel's in this. What? <laughs> no, you can't. So the reason why you didn't know I was also in it was number one, because for whoever's seen the movie, you know, I'm involved in a in a pretty big scene reveal. Yeah. At the same time, too, I only had those two pages from mm. my audition to shooting to rap. I only had those two pages. Wow. But, no idea where my character fit in into the actual film. So I didn't Oh, that's know, so crazy. I didn't know if my scene was going to get cut or not. <laughs> <laughs> like, you have no idea the huge importance that your character had. No idea at all. I'm sitting in the premiere and I'm like, I don't even know what movie I'm about to experience right now. It was oh the my first God. time I could say as an actor, I didn't know what I was going to watch. And it was so enjoyable. But... uh yeah, it was, it was, I didn't know whether I was going to get cut or not. So I was so afraid to tell anybody I was in the film and it was a big scene reveal. So I was like, if I do tell someone I'm giving away a character as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It must've felt like being at Disneyland when you saw that then, because it's just like to be a part of something that huge and not really realize like how big your character was in the making of it as well is just so wild to me. Jillian, let me tell you this because you'll understand it. It's like there was one day one when I showed up to set after I did like wardrobe fitting and all that. Mind you, wardrobe fitting, Ruth Carter killed it. Like just crazy. There were different tribes Mm -hmm. for Black Panther. We walk into the warehouse and there's like 
rows and racks of sections for each tribe, not uh. let alone the original costumes that you're supposed to have. So that was its own, what would be a normal soundstage that people film on? Yeah. That's just wardrobe. Holy crap. Now you get to set and I go to meet Ryan Coogler because we have yet to meet. Oh my God. So, uh, he's like, they're doing a scene with like some 50 caliber like gun off the side of like a, a Jeep Wrangler or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're firing actual rounds. Well, not like real rounds, but like. <laughs> um, and it's the forest scene where the Congo first shows up. Oh now, my God. 12 military vehicles in there. All authentic dirt. Trees that have been flown in and potted into the ground. And I mean, like, to some extent, like, there's moss and grass, and there's a whole blue-green screen that's covering around that. So they're able to drive 12 cars through this. And let me let me tell you this much. That's only maybe one-eighth of the soundstage that we were shooting on. Jesus. Building that's wild. Shit. They're building out, like, you know, the royal throne that, that Black Panther uh you know, T'Challa sits on, like, mm-hmm. everything built out. Even, you know, the scene that I'm in, which is an apartment in Oakland. Whole thing right. built out. The whole hallway is built out. And it's oh on God. platform risers so the camera can get below it if it needs to. Get this, Jillian. For the scene that I'm in, which is only two pages long, right? Mm-hmm. We shot that over the course of two days. Okay. When have you ever shot a scene that's just talking over two days? Um, Literally never. <laughs> Like never, because it's usually like, you know, half, I guess on regular film sets, it'd be like half a day, maybe half a day. If that, if you get yeah. one fourth, mm-hmm. that's wild. I, I just can't even imagine um, the experience of like sitting there and watching something that incredible and knowing that you were a part of it. It's, it's wild and you just kind of take it all in and mm-hmm. you one of the things my mom asked me before I went out there was she was like, you know, because this is when I was definitely taking my directing career a little bit seriously, mm-hmm. uh, more serious and, and, and wanting to, you know, sort of build that skill set of mine. She was like, do you ever think you could direct something like that? And before I was going out there, I was like, mom, hell no. I don't think I could do something like that. Mm. But I got to the set and I got to watch Ryan Coogler work and I got to watch all these different departments work. Mm-hmm. I realized that something of that scale, something of that magnitude, what the money affords you is time and it affords you resources and it affords you the best people at their right. craft possible. Right. And so you just take it in steps. It's the same thing. It's like the process is still the same, but you better damn sure know what to do with the resources <laughs> because we're going to give you the resources. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hundred percent. I mean, yeah. If you have the money and you have like a script that's that well written, mm-hmm. then you can you can get the people who are incredible production designers and incredible prop masters and you know everything else that goes in between. And it's it, things like that really prove how much you need every single person on that set to be at their highest working ability constantly. Absolutely, absolutely. A movie like that. I mean, just any movie in general, like the, the uh, how would you say, industry of filmmaking does not prevail without teamwork. Mm-hmm. You have to have a solid team. Like you could, you could dance as an artist solo. You can paint as an artist solo. Filmmaking mm-hmm. is one of those things where it's like, it's a collaborative effort. 
You know yeah. what I mean? It's funny, you know, people used to say all the time, like when YouTube was starting, like, well, why don't you just, you know, post acting videos? I'm like, because that's not like, that's, I can't just post a song, like a singer can just post a song. Like, it takes, if you want to do something good, and you want to do something well, like, it takes an entire team of people to come together and create something that's meaningful to everyone who's on board. Absolutely. If you want to, if you want the quality to be there. Right. Like, if you just want to upload a monologue, go for it. But... (laughs) If you want, if you want to do some TikTok videos, I mean, oh, sure, God. That's a whole avenue, but you know, I downloaded TikTok once and I like posted the movie trailer on it, one of my movies trailers, because I thought that's like what you did, and then I realized that that's not what you do, and therefore I deleted it. <laughs> I was like, oh great, I'm just not going to even try with this. <laughs> Yo, that's one of those things where count my age, I'm good. I'm I know. So good. I know. Oh, man. Um, okay. So the point of my, my show here is that we tell stories of um, sadness and, and fun stuff <laughs> and weird things that, you know, maybe a weird audition or a funny audition or something that you almost got that you really wanted. Um, do you have any stories that you would like to share for the audience that's sure. not here? Let's see. Weird auditions. Um, some weird ones. Listen, we we got stories, we got weird auditions. I remember, I remember there was this one time. Uh, there was this part I really wanted. I forgot what it was. It superhero high school or something. Do you remember that Disney show where it's about like a black family and they were superheroes? Oh my gosh! Yeah, wait. A movie that I came out. I do remember what I, I remember seeing it, but I don't remember the name. I don't remember the name either. But I'll, I'll put it like this: I wanted that role so badly Mm. and I did the callback and you know we even had like the session after that for network and I remember it was my birthday oh gosh that year my agent calls me tell me I didn't get tells me I didn't get the job and I'm sitting in bed like watching I think Dragon Ball Z or something like that (laughs) and I remember just like crying for my birthday (laughs) because I didn't get the job And, oh. and yeah, that was that was probably like one of those moments where it's like, ah, nothing's really guaranteed to you. Or just yeah. pilot season. For any actor who experiences pilot season, that is just it's the most grueling process every single year. Because oh, yeah. you end up doing multiple auditions. You know, you might have like four, five, six auditions. You sign this contract where you're looking at the number and you're like, Oh yeah, those checks could you're like oh i like that number that's a good one i love that number your agents (laughs) are negotiating like yeah we got you this number i'm like great cool do i get it you know yeah am i gonna actually make it or is that just a negotiation yeah and then you're sitting outside the waiting room with like two or three other people who generally are either your friends or they're the same people you always audition against Mm -hmm. good luck man yeah, you too. Good luck. They're going to do the audition in there like, shit, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to kill it. You go in there, you come out and you're just like, ah, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like pilot season, pilot season, man, is one of the most daunting times. And you know what's funny about pilot season? And, and I don't want to be too vocal about this, but it's like, these are some of the people who you've auditioned for all year round, if mm-hmm. not multiple times. Mm-hmm. You've guys seen what I could do, but now we need to test you in front of the network. So if you even test for pilot season, like say you get down to like round whatever and it's mm-hmm. one or two other people, that whole process starts back over again and the network's like, ah, we don't know if you could do it. You got to yeah. test again. Yeah. 
the the whole I think the whole like pilot season thing is just kind of so outdated. Like there really isn't a pilot season anymore, especially with all of these, you know, streaming services. It's like we're making series whenever we want to make series now. And people are tuning less and less into regular network shows. Like I feel like it's just such an outdated practice and the whole testing and all that kind of crap. Ugh, drives me nuts. It's a thing. It's big Hollywood, you know. It I mean? is big Hollywood. I remember I had this one day where I I had gone in for an audition for a pilot. I think I was twelve or thirteen, and it was it went in in the morning, mm-hmm. and then I had a a call back at like noon, mm. and then they called me, and I was testing by four p.m. at the studio. Yeah. And it was just so bizarre. It was just like an entire day of just this one audition. And then I didn't end up getting it because I was just like a sacrificial lamb to make the network get the other person that they wanted. Because that oh. happens a lot, too. Oh, my God, does that happen? <laughs> yeah, so well, that sucked. But it's just it's crazy. You you don't have to ever face this, but be the ethnic play that they want. Mm. Yeah, this happened to me maybe a couple of pilot seasons ago where. It was this role. They really loved me. Like network was was head over heels. Well, I was the ethnic option because once I got to the testing round, there was me and three other white dudes. And it's like the description didn't say white. It actually said any ethnicity. And if I believe correctly, I believe it said, you know, looking for specifically like Indian or black or Latin. Mm. So y'all specifically sent me through this ringer. To then right. test me against three white dudes who you already knew you wanted to test. It's just so disappointing. <laughs> it's just so disappointing. Yeah, but I, I, you know it's, what? It's just such a it's such a Hollywood thing that's going on right now, where it's like all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, let's push diversity," and then they just they push diversity in like such simple areas instead of like actually pushing diversity the correct way of like putting black leads and things that are you know like the fucking like mike and molly shows like why don't we have that you know well jillian you know as well as i do there's metrics and politics and and look i'll put it like this i'll put it like this i don't know if you feel this way but stepping behind the camera and kind of learning the process of filmmaking or trying to sell a show or just trying to like do something from the ground up instead of walking to it as an actor, I at least have a little bit more of an understanding. I'm not saying that I condone it all, but I can at least understand. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think to the point that you just made, diversity in certain roles is great. Diversity, even on like a hit network show, would change the landscape. Mm-hmm. Diversity within the boardroom or the executives is what needs to be made. Hundred percent. There's there's still a lot of uh, white men in control. Yeah. Well, I mean, look. And again, this is why I can't even fault them because look, if I was white and I want to tell an interesting story that that sticks out to me, I've lived my whole life as a white man. So these right. are the stories that interest me. Mm-hmm. My story as a black kid is not going to interest you. So that's why if we put ourselves in executive positions, that's where the diversity and stories are going to come out. And it also takes a diversity with the capital as well. Mm. And it takes people who are willing to make a chance. And I'm, I'm glad certain, you know, um, outlets and, and distributors are taking those chances. Like HBO, they didn't have to make Watchmen, you know, set to the tone of, of 
you know, Tulsa. Right. They yeah. That. They didn't have to put, you know, Regina King as the lead. Like they didn't mm-hmm. have to. But I appreciate moves like that because that's a true move. Right. You know, in trying to make diversity a real thing. That's yeah. And that's the point that I was trying to get across. But I don't know if it actually came out that way. But yes, it's like it's taking the roles that, you know, you hire fucking Charlize Theron for every single time and actually putting a black actor in that role who would be great. But just, you know, somebody that's taking these same little stories and just putting in black actors instead of always hiring the white actors. Very much so. Listen, don't send me out for Harriet Tubman five. Give me. me (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's all I'm saying. Harriet Tubman five. (laughs) Oh, geez, Louise. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And you're going to have to come back because I love talking to you. Of course. I mean, this, I know we, we set our intentions before this and we breeze right past them. Yeah, we did. We, we really did. We went so far beyond the intentions, but I loved it. But it's good. We, we got history like that. I mean, we've, I'm sure collectively between you and I, we've got stories for days. We've barely mm-hmm. been proud of these stories. It's true. It's true. We could probably host our own podcast together of just all the stories. I would not put it past this. To be honest with you, let's do a round two sometime. Let's do uh, it. I would love that. And then we could just figure out, we could, we could jump right into the stories. <laughs> um, where can people find you on social media? Uh, people out there, press the magic button hand clap. What's up? Yay. Woo. <laughs> right, uh, listen, you can, you can find me at, at Blackmouth, B-L-A-C-K-M-O-U-F. Even if you just type in Blackmouth, that's how you find me. If you go past page one, you will not find me anymore because I <laughs> blackmouth for everything, Twitter, Instagram, website. That's how you get a hold of me. Thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's such a joy to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Always good when we connect. Thank you again to Denzel for coming on the show. I love speaking with him. He's going to have to come back. You're going to have to come back, bud. Sorry. Just so that we can talk. I don't even care if you share a story. We'll just talk and I'll record it. It'll be an episode. Tune in next week to hear my conversation with Bless This Mess actress Lisa Linky. You may also know her podcast, Go Help Yourself. We have a great conversation. Super excited for you to hear it. Until then, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. You can also follow us on social media. Those links are in the show notes. Make sure to tell your friends, your family, your dog, and maybe your parrot. Do you have a parrot? I like parrots. Parrots are cool. And as always, thanks for coming in. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new. Or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care. Dear stranger, 
for some truths are best left unknown.